Navigating the Datascape with Warner Chavez and special guests. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Datascape podcast. This is the inaugural episode for 2023. I'm going to do a recap of 2022, and we're going to look into the crystal ball for what is expected of 2023 with Pythian's CTO, Paul Lewis, a man that is a huge veteran of the IT industry. How are you, Paul? I am doing great. I take I take offense by veteran. I've only been doing this for 30 <laughs> years. That's, that's barely veteran. It's, yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because you think about it. And it's like you say, like you've been doing it for 30 years. So it means you just started in like the late 90s, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Nowadays, so like people, I'm approaching 40. I'm approaching 40. And then people say like, oh my God, this thing is like 20 years old. It's so old. And it's like, that means it was past the year 2000. Nothing past the year 2000 is too old. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's how, that's how it is. All right, Paul, for the listeners that might not be familiar with you, just give us a, a quick intro of, uh, of your background. Sure. So uh, I've been here two years. Prior to that, I was the global CTO of Hitachi for a decade. And then prior to that, I was the CTO and CIO of banking for 17 years. So the vast majority of my perspective in many ways still is enterprise consumer of technology, right? A user of technology. And then that's kind of my Monday job on Tuesday through Friday is, you know, Netflix and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And TikTok. All right. Paul and I uh, shared a, a list of items that we thought were notable mentions for 2022. And, and we want to discuss them and look into the future as well. So first one was, to me, this is a big that stands out in the IT industry at large. It loves the buzzwords. But this one is particularly interesting because we, we live and breathe data at Pythian, right? And there's many other... Uh, companies out there, obviously, they're starting big data-related projects, the data-related journeys. And then last year, I don't remember if that data mesh article slash uh, white paper, whatever you might want to call it, came out last year, but it definitely caught fire last year. Suddenly, there were articles, YouTube videos, everything talking about data mesh and how if you're not developing a data mesh, well, I don't know what you're doing anymore, kind of thing. And and obviously, you know, if you're in IT, you have to be able to sift through the noise, to call it, you know, to say it uh, mildly, to figure out, okay, what is what is this hype? Is it is it merited? Is it not merited? Did we see success with people doing data mesh? I have some some mixed opinions, but I, I wanna I wanna get your opinion first, Paul. It, it's funny. Everything in IT, you know, in the last 30 years, but even the last 50 to 60 years, boils down to one of two things: either abstracting to its lowest common denominator or virtualizing for the sake of virtualizing. <laughs> so so almost almost any innovation is saying, you know what, I could group these things together, virtualize it, do it all at the same time, right? Which is why we see uh, OS virtualization, the container shift. And then it's abstraction to the lowest point. Like, let's create a, instead of creating an application, let's create a service. And if we're creating a service, we'll create a microservice. And that mm -hmm. microservice eventually is just a call that says, store data, get data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we just abstract it so much. So just with nice, friendly names, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and one could argue that data mesh, data fabric kind of falls in the same category, right? Where there was some dissatisfaction with, um, 
centralized governance. So they thought to themselves, why don't we federate these governance? There's dissatisfaction with, you know, centralized data warehouse, data lake, just technology platform in general. So they said, why don't we federate those concepts and let the individual department, individual line of businesses, individual companies sort of take control of that technology and the governance deployment. And then let's wrap this up in process and people and data products, create data product managers, right? To support the concept of this world. And while, you know, philosophically from an either virtualization and abstraction perspective, I get it. It kind of makes sense. It empowers people closest to the data from a practical perspective is where sort of the difficulties lie, right? In order for those things to be true, one has to spend a lot more on data people, on data technology, the likelihood that I've, um, the likelihood that I've created governance policy and philosophy centralized that's amazing is low. So trying to federate that to individual organizations who get to control theirs has much more likelihood to have less governance rather than more governance. Um, and just technology costs money. So if you create optionality and technology, then you know you get a lot more problems, a lot more 3 a.m. calls because of it. That, that's kind of how I see it. What do you yeah. think? I like a couple of things about it. So I, I like the distributed governance idea, right? I, I do think that, you know, given the huge amount of different sources and um, the way that data is entering organizations nowadays, you, it's really hard to uh, assume any sort of central ownership of it, right? So I do like the idea of distributed ownership and having people that are subject matter experts at what the data actually is provide input and be able to take decisions on that data as well. So that I really like. I like the idea of data products too, because same thing, I feel like data can be treated as a product nowadays and can be evolved. It, uh, you know, requirements can be lifted. The user stories can be written about the data now. Um, and I like that idea. I agree with you. I, I struggle with the practical sense of having to have data professionals at different levels of skills all over the organization serving different orgs that um, might see their priorities very differently and might also um, want to have different tech. Again, then, then the stack itself gets more complicated. Now I've seen some people throw in some diagrams. Well, they're basically saying, oh, this is my data mesh. And it is the tech stack is not distributed, right? It's basically centralized tech stack with the distributed governance and the, the and the definition of data products. So to me, a lot of people just, they ran with the buzzword, right? And they just took a few bits and pieces and they then they called it, oh, this is my data mesh, right? Which is very common in IT too, right? Like, you know, talking about people back in the day, they would take some data that they had somewhere that it was just like, 50 gigs or something, throw it in like a dupe cluster and suddenly say, oh, look, look at me, I'm doing big data, right? <laughs> so it feels it feels kind of like that way. So I think what we need to take away from the data mesh thing is, is really the distributed governance, the idea of thinking our, of our data as products. But I, I wouldn't get hung up in the, you know, distributed tech stack um, part of, of, the, of the philosophy, what I would and say. It, and it does require sort of different spending, right? If I have a data product manager and those data product managers are creating products for consumption internally, the politics of that become important. It's quite possible that 
four of your eight line of businesses don't care about consuming the data products which you're building. Right. So mm-hmm. now you've gone from eight consumers to four consumers. Therefore, how much money are you really putting into this effort? Right. So yeah. building data products for external consumption, I completely buy. Right. I'm going to yeah. create a marketplace of data. We're going to share data in a community. Got that. Internally in small organizations. Seems no, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it does seem overkill for a small and medium business in general to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that I agree, right? We're looking at probably bigger uh, size organizations that could really leverage the advantages versus just generating overhead and chaos by doing it that way, right? Yeah. Okay. What do, what do we think about data mesh for 2023? My forecast for this is we will still hear a little bit about data mesh. IT is quick to replace buzzwords though, so we will hear something else. Um, you and I, I, I think we discussed a little bit, Gardner started to float around this word, the new buzzword called data fabric last year as well. So that's competing on the data X buzzword <laughs> space. Um, I, I read the Gardner data fabric thing and I, I've been worked with data for a long time. I still didn't quite get exactly what they meant. And what's your take on that? What do you think Cer- for the, the history of data mesh? What is it looking for in the future of data mesh? Certainly, you know, how much Gartner spends on it would suggest we're going to see more of it, right? And they, yeah. they have 30 conferences, so we'll, so we'll certainly hear more of that. Sorry, data fabric. Um, but because the big technology vendors are also using these terms and these technologies, you know, the Databricks, the Snowflakes, and even the native deployments with each one of the clouds, I think we'll hear, hear more hype and we'll hear more stories, more, hear, hear more implementation, you know, use cases, and that will create a little bit more hype, but it will also settle out on its practicality. I think, you know, what we'll hear in 2023 is positive uses in banking, in telco, large manufacturing plants, large, you know, national and international organizations but we'll start to hear sort of a quiet implementation and it'll just be within platform, right? So we'll deploy Snowflake. Snowflake will have an ability to build data products. That's some of the value of data mesh data fabric. And that's kind of as far as we'll go. So we'll start to create a new version, a new description, a new definition of data mesh based on the technology to which you deploy. And that's kind of how most technology definitions augment over time. All right, let's move on to the next one. This is a a very interesting phenomenon that we lived through in the last two years in the IT industry. And it was the big boom in IT hiring and IT compensation. And now following the, you know, the last, let's say a year and a half of macroeconomic conditions. And now we've seen all these layoffs, pretty much every single big corp that we think of like the big tech technology has done several thousands, right? We're talking about Microsoft, Amazon, Google, um, and it's even, I mean, other other parts of the economy are obviously affected as well. I think Disney, just yesterday, we're, we're recording right now in mid-February, and Disney yesterday announced, I think it's 8,000 people. So not, not necessarily related to tech, but 8,000 people in general across their brands. Uh, so it is definitely a macroeconomic thing, but in terms of the IT industry, the interesting thing about it was that it was preceded by this massive hiring and this massive race to, you know, get talent, get talent, get talent. I think it was famously Shopify who said that they wanted to have 2,000 data scientists on staff. Shopify actually was one of the first that announced layoffs um, in the last quarter of last year. 
right? So first, I want to get your thoughts on what were people thinking with the whole massive hiring spree and how did they think it was going to play out? And then we can talk about, okay, we're not, what are they thinking now that the macro has changed? We, we live in a weird, strange, funny economy. So those macroeconomic factors played important during the pandemic COVID years where, you know, six month, one year digital transformation programs were condensed into three, four weeks, right? I had to create a mobile app quickly. I had to create a new customer journey that was digital only. I had to move all my staff uh, to home in a virtual setting. And that created a very large technology purchase bubble. A lot of things were bought in a very small period of time, and things are accelerated quickly. And that created this massive technology bubble where all of those technology companies in Silicon Valley hired a bunch of people to keep up with that work and to sell more product and sell more services. And they grew way more than they should have because they were seeing some near real-time, you know, highly purchasable technology assets. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, it created this bubble where that is not a sustainable purchasing requirement. As soon as COVID pandemic went down and inflation went up, then all of a sudden budgets either didn't increase, stayed stable, or started to decline, IT budgets. And when that happens, it's not that they purchase less overall, it's that it takes longer to purchase. So what might have been a three-week purchase becomes a six-month purchase. And that extended time creates longevity and pipeline, the, the percentage of clothes is difficult, and therefore I don't need as many field staff and as many technologists. And as, in Twitter sense, you know, a new CEO who determined they needed to be profitable, right? So, you know, 100,000 Silicon Valley roles were removed in the last few months. Um, and yes, other parts of the sort of technology spectrum, including Disney, have also sort of removed those roles. But what's interesting, this weird, crazy economy that we have, we still have a lot of open jobs, but those lot of open jobs aren't in California. They're in Nebraska, right? They're in Montana. They're in Saskatchewan. They're in Quebec. So lots of technology jobs exist, but it may not be where the people are. So this is another point. I thought managers, and I'm obviously speaking in a broad term, but I thought managers had capitulated to the idea of having their direct reports every day at line of sight during COVID. I thought they were giving up on this idea. Like I, and, and now, to your point, first of all, if you're having trouble hiring in Nebraska, what you should do is hire somebody somewhere else to do the job for you remotely. But if now we see other people, especially nowadays with the, the news cycle and everything, and then people were talking about, oh my God, Elon Musk is saying everybody at Twitter has got to show up at least 40 hours physically or you're not getting paid and all this other stuff. He actually had to back down a little bit on that anyway. Um, but um, there seems to be this, uh, you know, this revival of the idea that you do have to have people physically and the two camps keep moving back and forth. I don't think people are going back to a full office model, but it seems more more managerial or C-levels want to see at least like hybrid for a lot of organizations, right? It, that's fair. It, and when I talk to CIOs and CTOs and I talk to, I don't know, let's say 100 per quarter, 
their biggest problem right now isn't technological, right? They don't have a technological engineering capability problem. Yes, they have gaps, but that's not where their biggest concern is. Their biggest concern is three big people problems. One of them being diversity. How do I get diversity of thought, diversity of geography, diversity of people, diversity of ideas? And it's less about hiring people because they know how to do that. Now it's about elevating people through the hierarchy with that diversity, right? So that's the next challenge. Uh, the second challenge is succession where the CIO now has to do something different, right? They're, they get measured now on the growth of the business. They get measured on, you know, financial uh, revenue and, and EBITDA and they're having board meetings and they're presenting and creating customer journey conversations with the, their executive team. But none of the VPs who worked for them got to do that work. So now there's a gap between the CIO and the VP. But to your point specifically is that last one. And that last one is culture. CIOs, managers, directors have controlled culture from the top down. And they controlled culture by enforcing people going to the office, having open door policies, going to physical meetings, doing whiteboard sessions, having pizza parties, lunch and lunch, so on and mm -hmm. so forth. Now that all that doesn't exist and that I have so many empty properties, you know, the Googleplex is empty. Uh, how do I, how do I maintain culture or how do I learn how to give up culture pushing and make sure culture is coming from below, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. bottom up culture. And that's, difficult for a manager to accept it's difficult for a manager mm -hmm. to control because that's what they're used to doing and that's kind of the mind share challenge of these managers is how do i motivate and send uh, people to celebrate team and individual success when i don't see them and i can't shake their hands and they can't come into my office and we can't have pizza yeah um i have friends obviously that work for big tech that are in the IT industry as well, software engineering, web development, et cetera. Um, some of them are, are affected, some of them are not. The layoffs also have been happening. It's not just, even though they're tech companies, people have to realize obviously the tech companies, they don't just staff engineering people or you know uh, IT related people roles, right? It's, it's affected throughout the different functions of such a massive corporation, let's say like Microsoft, right? So they'll have salespeople that go, marketing people that go, et cetera, et cetera, right? So all these people out there now, what do you think is the outlook for 2023 in general? And this kind of goes hand in hand with our next topic, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But is it going to be, you know, is there enough to absorb these people? You know, in let's say one year, are we looking at, you know, these people looking for work for extended period of time? Again, we're just looking at the crystal ball to talk about this. Or, or is, you know, there's enough technology work or technology companies out there to really, you know, absorb as many people that are going out of the, the bigger corporations? I definitely think there's enough engineering work, right? So if you're developing code, if you're a data engineer, if you're a technologist and a technology specialist, there are lots of roles around the world. And if you're going to work in a virtual setting, you're going to be fine. I do agree that the sort of the bigger circle around the tech bubble uh, uh, bursting is that the field resources, the CEs, the salespeople, marketing, marketing enablement, marketing programs, uh, partnering, business development, that series of people will have a much harder time, right? Because the, the amount of purchases aren't, isn't growing. The mm -hmm. purchases are taking longer. 
So do I really need to add to my sales team, even though they have a specialty in Google or Facebook or Twitter? Maybe not. Right. So I think there'll be a challenge in that side, even though there won't be a challenge on the technology and technology specialist side. All right. Well, everybody, hopefully everybody lands uh, has, a, has a soft landing in this particular situation. And we'll see how it goes. By the way, uh, if you're listening to this, Pythian is hiring. Pythian.com slash careers. Shameless self-plug. And <laughs> hand in hand with this topic is the next one in our list. And is the public debut of chat GPT at the end of 2022. And wow, what a, it's again, dominating all the headlines here. I don't think the public at large had ever had open access to a conversational AI like chat GPT. Obviously there's, if you go online, there's already even people that have developed courses about how do you uh, sell, let's say email marketing through chat GPT. Right. So basically what you do is you go out and find uh, somebody to pay you to do email marketing and then you just leverage chat GPT to do all your copywriting for you. And then, you, just, you know, you're basically, um, uh, you know, profiting from the margin there. Uh, but that, and this is just one one uh, use case, obviously, uh, uh, of chat GPT. There's there's tons of other things Some people have said, well, it, I think it's the death of homework. Uh, for for teenagers in general. Right. You can ask chat GPT to write you essays. Um, but most importantly, it also does a lot of the other stuff that we were just talking about or opens the door to it, right? Um, ChatGPT can write like job descriptions. Uh, it's only a matter of time until it's allowed to interact with the outside world, right? And then start calling people, talking to people and stuff like that. There's other people already uh, discussing like the built-in biases inside ChatGPT in the way that it's trained, the things that you can ask it, the things that it won't answer. What else did I see the other day? Oh yeah, some people are, are coming up with the smart prompts to try to work around the limitations of chat GPT. So things that you can ask it to make it think outside of the boundaries of what it's not allowed to answer and stuff like that. Very, very interesting. But I mean, it does have an impact again to what are we going to see in terms of the productivity that people will be able to gain from a tool like this or the outright replacement of human work? Are you impressed by it? Are you not impressed? Do you think it's hype? Some people I also talked about think it's just hype and just like anything in tech, it'll just, you know, fizzle out in a few months. I, I'm I'm not convinced. I think obviously uh, it could be a very, very big thing, um, but it depends on how it develops in the next few months and how people start to use it, right? Yeah, I'm I'm way bullish on this. I'm way optimistic. On yeah, this. This, this is not hype, uh, and it's yeah. not hype because you see so many practical uses it in a day to day world, right? Mm -hmm. I bet you know millions of people are just using it to make quick you know blog entries, or they're doing they're throwing some code at it and say optimize this code, or you know give me this non Google searchable answer in a you know discrete comprehensive form, which is awesome. And you can use it now and everybody can use it and it's easy to understand. So to be bullish and optimistic on this is kind of in fairness easy to do. Now uh, there are and will be competitors will be just as good or better or I think there'll be a lot of competition to be good or better in the near recent future, which is awesome. Um, I yeah. think that'll only play to our benefit. And yes, there'll be lots of marketplace applications that will either create a better experience of using it or just 
creating different use cases to support it. Also wholeheartedly agree with that. Now, holistically though, do I think that a technology like this replaces people? Uh, technology like this has always replaced people, just certain types of people, right? Will it be able to, over time, displace completely a contact center? Probably. Will it completely, over time, displace a painter? Probably not, right? So there's this spectrum of what you can or cannot do based on the creativity of humans and the requirement to have you know, emotional decision-making, which it won't be able to do, which is fine because you know humans need to exist in this world, right? So they're not taking over the world. But I think it is fair to say that of all the technologies that have meant to be creating automation, even just like simple RPA stuff, which has displaced people over time, or at least displaced roles, this is the technology that is going to do the most damage in a positive sense, right? It'll do the most to move the needle on amount of automation we can deploy, which really just means the remaining technologists, right? The remaining people, the remaining creativity, the remaining engineering, the remaining invention that has to get done by humans will be that much more difficult to do, right? The, the, your depth of technology needs to get deeper. Your breadth of technology needs to get broader as a technologist. So over the years, I think if you have a thin understanding of 15 different tech, this isn't in your best interest as a technologist. And, and we're just talking about ChatGPT as an example, but I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, for example, MidJourney, the AI that creates images based on prompts. And because sometimes people, you know, would say, oh, well, uh, it's never going to be creative or it's never going to be able to match like human creativity and stuff like that. But I mean, you don't, you don't have to, not every, not everybody that's creative is, you know, a, a Leonardo. So people that are listening to this, you might want to just go online. You can search for a mid journey. And there's a really cool thing I saw the other day. It was basically, they asked the, the AI to generate Spider-Man across human history and, and the designs that it came up with, they were really good. You know, if that, I would say like, yeah, there's a movie, there's another movie there. You would not be able to tell the average person would not be able to tell, nor would the average person care that some of this stuff, the designs, the quality, the creativity came from an AI or it came from a human artist. I don't think the average person would care. All they would care is that they're going to go see a cool movie that has Spider-Man in like, you know, Japanese samurai look or something like that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's going after creative jobs as well. I don't know if you've seen also the capabilities that it has to create photorealistic images because people were saying then online is stock photography is going to be dead. Why would I pay a stock photographer to go in and create this like super nice setup and take pictures of things? It's just like, you know, we need a picture of like uh, some like sports stuff with like a background of this when you can just describe it to the AI and the AI will generate photorealistic image of what you're looking for. I saw some that were like related to food. So basically prompts of like the food they wanted to generate the image for. You could not tell that that food did not exist basically, right? So it, uh, it has these like ramifications all over society. Actually, I was talking about this on the previous episode with uh, Jen Stirrup, amazing lady out of the UK and her concerns about this, that, you know, this is this difficulty of 
being able to grasp anymore what is real and what isn't, right? And, and, and her concern, obviously, was over, over uh, deep fakes, right? And especially uh, the just the explosion of non-consensual uh, virtual uh, pornography on the internet, right? Uh, which is a, it's a completely legitimate concern. And, but, but it goes beyond that now with all this other technology, right? It's like all these things that just don't exist and you can just materialize with the prompt. And because we transmit most of our communication now digitally, right? Nobody's going to walk over somewhere to verify that something is there or not, right? Uh, I agree with you that in general, most people wouldn't know whether what they're looking at, especially an image, is real or fake. But the reality is lots of people have seen the Mona Lisa, but they've seen pictures of somebody else's picture of a Mona Lisa, right? Very few have actually seen the Mona Lisa. But I, but I do believe that there's a distinct difference between quality and emotion when it comes to creativity. So if I'm looking at the Mona Lisa, you could absolutely use AI to generate a picture that just has the exact same amount of quality, if not better, right? Just based on digital versus, uh, versus sort of an analog painting. However, what you won't have is the story of the painter. What you won't have is the emotion of the, of the model that was sitting there. You won't know what their interaction was. So the emotional aspect of creativity is not a duplicatable thing. And that's the human experience. And that'll still be true. And that'll still exist. Even if a lot of the images we produce might in fact be an automated image. So I wouldn't look at creativity and emotional creativity is the same or quality and emotion is the same. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting take. As long as, to your point, people will still value the emotional factor in the art, which I think is the unknown right now. We will see what society does with this technology, right? <laughs> right. We don't. Right. We don't. We don't really know yet. Something else that I saw the other day, like, talking about automation and stuff like that, and AI. I saw the other day already somebody's working on an AI prompt-based, um, no-code app designer. So you basically say a uh, registration page for a dog grooming service and the AI just goes, poof, here's your no code uh, registration page for your dog grooming service, right? So it's very interesting. And then, and then again, this is going to go out to say, if you, if you are an average UI designer, then probably the AI is going to match you. If you are an outstanding UI designer, then maybe you still have an edge for now. Yeah. And, we'll and the complexity matters. I have no doubt that AI can easily build a, you know, a dog adoption website. What it won't be able to do is recreate Amazon.com. Right? What it won't be able to do is, is deal with the scale of Google searching. Right? So there is a limit to which they'll be able to, at least now. I'm not saying the future won't have that limit, but yeah. there is a level of complexity and evolution that you can't do with a single set of out code output, right? The reality is amazon.com has felt decades of pain and that decades of pain has created better quality services of code. That comes with experience. That doesn't come with techno technological acumen or accuracy. And so final thing about ChatGPT or these AI automation things, what do you think about the business prospects of let's say, a, a Google, a Microsoft, and OpenAI to commercialize this for internal use in organizations? 
So I unleash ChatGPT against my, let's say my SharePoint website, and then people can just ask questions private, right? To, or just based on our data. Is, is that the next step? I think it's highly commercial. I, I think this is quick win money. I think almost any organization would pick it up and use it for a variety of reasons. I bet a bunch of people are paying $20 a month, right? This is, this is, this is an easy Twitter blue decision, right? In my opinion. Sounds good. All right. So we'll see, we'll see what happens there. That's the crystal ball for 2023, the internal commercialization of SaaS, ChatGPT or, or its equivalents. Another one that was a big news item, two, two news items from last year that are related to large acquisitions we can discuss here is that one Broadcom is still trying to acquire VMware for 61 billion. Um, and then the other one was Microsoft trying to acquire Activision. I don't remember what the amount is for that, but both of those large acquisitions, obviously they are going through regulators. Neither one of them has been given the full uh, green light. Uh, I was more interested in Broadcom acquiring VMware than Microsoft acquiring Activision because Microsoft obviously is in fierce competition through their gaming uh, brand and uh, Activision is, is one of the largest publishers of video games in the world. It would give them m even more properties to compete against Sony and exclusivity and, and you know increase the strength of their uh, Windows gaming brand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Broadcom acquiring VMware is a little bit, I guess, I don't know, I, I find it harder to understand the return of investment of the 61 billion. What are your thoughts on that? I'm old enough to remember when Broadcom bought Brocade. I don't know what that is, so there you go. <laughs> Brocade was sort of the big competitor to Cisco in terms of the networking okay. equipment. Right. So gotcha. I, I remember when that was a big deal, when, you know, Broadcom, the organization sort of consolidated uh, their sort of equipment capability by buying another big networking provider. And that was a big deal, which had big implica implications for the data center. This is also another acquisition that has big implications for the data center. Right? So the goal is to create a mega sort of data center practice, which is both the physical equipment and the services to support that. And it's probably a great purchase for them. Now, based on the purchase price, do they have a return of investment that's gonna happen quickly? Hard to tell. But what I can say is that the growth of the data center is a real thing, right? People mm -hmm. are spending more money in the data center today than they did five years ago. Yes, they've moved a lot of their workloads to the cloud, but the reality is EMC, Broadcom, IBM, HP, Hitachi has grown their business. All of their business is physical equipment and software in the data mm. center. Those footprints have grown and they've grown because applications grow by their very nature, right? A couple of gigabytes here, a couple of gigabytes there, another, another few users, another few core, well, that adds up to billions of dollars, right? So this is a good purchase for them to consolidate infrastructure and software in the data center and command the data center to overwhelm, let's say the Microsoft implementations of the same thing. It's wise for them. The price point is sort of questionable from an investment perspective, but the strategic deployment of that, I think is a, a smart purchase for them. And, and what are your thoughts about, you know, outside of the acquisition? just VMware in general is obviously 
if you're still doing your own data center, which you know the vast majority of people still do, they you think that virtualization is 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 just a given at this point, right? It is the question now though is what hypervisor platform are you going to choose? Are you going to buy into VMware, which is what most people actually do? Or like to your point, Microsoft obviously has the Hyper-V competing platform. I think um, IBM, obviously with the purchase of Red Hat also has a competing platform there. Is it still a given that people just think virtualization equals VMware? Or do you see more people trying to branch out? Because it used to be that at least I remember looking at market polls and stuff like that. And the fraction of on-prem virtualization that was not VMware was minuscule. I'm not sure that has really changed. Oh yeah, they're they definitely the 800 pound gorilla in that world. And it's not just because, you know, in many ways they were the inventor of the VM in general, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was just, you know, simple OS virtualization. And now they've expanded to almost any type of workload and infrastructure virtualization. It is actually very rare now that you'd ever require a bare metal implementation. It would have to be software that requires, you know, direct access to core processing or memory, uh, which is just an unlikely event at the moment. Um, And of course, uh, the virtualization is much more of an x86 world where the AIX world and the, and the, the mainframe world kind of has their own different layers of virtualization, but IBM also has virtualization technology to support that. It, it is fair to say that they're, they're 800 pound gorilla. It's not likely somebody else will take over it, which is why the growth of VMware hasn't necessarily been in virtualization, other than ensuring that every OS, right, and every container can be virtualized, only that they start to do work on the developer side, right? How can they create developer tools and technologies? How can they create uh, virtual desktop technologies? How can they create security technologies? So their growth has been capabilities within the data center, not necessarily depth of virtualization. So while VMware is akin to virtualization, that's what you think of, they are mostly the software-defined data center. So SDDC, Mm -hmm. that's, that's how they would describe themselves. Everywhere from developers deploying to data center to uh, users accessing services in the data center to the actual virtualization of the services themselves. That's how they see themselves. That's how they've grown. That's how they'll still be staying command. Interesting. Well, we'll see what the question now is, whether the regulators allow both of these purchases, you know, Broadcom to acquire VMware or Microsoft to acquire Activision. And interestingly, I saw, uh, I think it was yesterday, I saw a news item that I think European regulators made it really complicated for Microsoft to acquire Activision. Actually, they said you can do it, but only if Activision breaks itself up so that you can't really acquire the whole Activision, um, which I don't really know if that would be palatable to Microsoft anyway. Now let's shift another trend I saw definitely saw last year. And I think it started before last year, to be honest. It started a couple of years ago, but it's definitely gaining strength uh, in the last uh, year. And it is the move of some of these vendors. I live in the data space, so I use examples from the data space. But there seems to be more well-capitalized companies that are in the data space that are developing services that cut across the major cloud providers and compete with the major cloud providers. Like Snowflake, we have Databricks, we have MongoDB Atlas, we have a people like Confluent that do this with Kafka as well. 
um, I'm probably missing a couple more uh, large, uh, big profile examples. But the, the idea here, again, is, you know, instead of you using the native cloud services, there seems to be a value add. And, there, and the value proposition is hitting with a lot of people, obviously, because we see companies like Snowflake being very successful. Databricks is also planning their IPO. I think they have an IPO just because the market went south. So it's due to macro conditions, not because the product is not, you know, a, a solid product that would probably uh, be, uh, it's going to keep growing in the next few years, right? If you're running on top of somebody else's cloud hardware, you, ha they, you have to deal with their margin and then your margin on top. And then you have to be the end user paying on top of that. Um, wh why is this coming up now? Why is this new strategy or approach coming in? And, and where do you see it growing? And do you think this is a valid pattern as well? Sorry, there was a lot of questions there. I know, sorry. It, <laughs> not one, it was like four. Uh, I, I believe the growth of data platforms in a platform versus data platforms natively architected, the growth of the platforms is because the buyer in many ways has shifting away from the technology buyer, the developer buyer, the IT buyer, to the business buyer. And if it's the business buyer, they are less interested in DIY. They're more interested in creating insight. So which is why you know we've had the privilege of going to a Snowflake conference or a Databricks conference, or even if it was just a day-long thing. And we've personally witnessed a very diversified room for those platforms as compared to a native, right? In those rooms, we've seen 40, 50% business users, people from finance, people from operations, people from the retail bank, because they know they can use SQL to access that data, that they have access to you know, a marketplace of data that they can add into their visualization tools, that they don't require a development background or a data engineering expertise to have access to the core assets of their business, which is why it's appealing to them. And yes, there's a premium to the price of that, right? It's, it's clearly gonna cost me more to implement and run a platform as compared to native DIY, but they like the fact that it doesn't require skill sets beyond their division. Now, in fairness, it it doesn't give you everything you might possibly need that you could use in a DIY sense, right? You could, you know, go natively in a single cloud or natively in multiple cloud and bring together a warehouse and a data lake and call it lakehouse if you really want. And you can, you know, code your analytical pipelines and, you know, you know create your infrastructure's code, your CI CD pipelines and Terraform. Like you can do all this stuff and bring it together, not just the native tool sets, native services, but then all those third-party niche, right? I'm gonna go to Confluence and get uh, to get some streaming. I'm gonna go to Splunk and have access to the IT data. I'm gonna use you know DBT or, or Click for ETL integration. I can use a variety of visualization tools. I can build that together, but that's gonna take longer. It's gonna require lots of IT expertise. And yes, it will be cheaper to run, but I now require you know, more people, more time, more energy, more, more technology disciplines in order to make that happen. Which is why you kind of see sort of the decision-making process between do I go cloud native completely or do I go data platform platform? But then there's this emerging third category that says, well, maybe there's a little mix of both. Maybe, you know, Google could put in place 
a mini platform that does some of the stuff, but then um, I still have to stuff in a Snowflake data warehouse into it, right? So I'll, I'll create a platform to have low code, no code to do the analytical platforms, the analytical pipelines, but then I still have to use a commercial warehouse. So it's actually, one could argue, much more complex of a decision-making process. It's not really just native or, or platform, it's native or platform or somewhere in between. But I do believe, I agree with you that the growth of the snowflakes and the and the Databricks, you know, going from a hundred million dollars a year to a billion dollars a year, Snowflake wants to be a five or ten billion dollar year business in the next, you know, five to ten years, will happen, and it will happen because the buyers of those platforms are the ones with the money, and they're likely going to buy those platforms. But that that's my assumption of the future. The other thing, another one that's somewhat data related, we're, we're closing in on the hour here, but I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, I, I follow quite a bit of the crypto industry, the whole Web3, you know, the decentralized web is the future kind of thing. And, and it's really hard to navigate this space. And I'll tell you why, because, or well, at least what I think is because people are in like, especially the media, the headlines, they all revolve around the monetary, like the, you know, USD value of crypto as some sort of proxy for the technological um, validness of, of what they're doing, right? So it basically, in, in people's minds, is like every time, every time that Bitcoin has it, one more crash, it just means that the idea of like the actual technology is, is dead. For whatever reason, right? It's like the price becomes a proxy of what society collectively is thinking about blockchain. So obviously, you if you remember back in 2017 when it was the first time that really it went mainstream, suddenly in 2017, everybody everybody had to have a blockchain doing something, right? And we saw some ridiculous things happening. And then it crashed, and then everybody forgot about blockchain again. And then it started to, the price started to blow up again. And suddenly we had this whole thing about NFTs back in, when was it? At the peak of the, of the cuts of the federal rate, right? The NFTs for everything. You can, NFTs, even Pizza Hut was selling NFTs. Um, and now it crashes again, right? And now back, you know, we don't hear about the technology anymore. So it's only a matter of time. I mean, this is, people will say, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. It's only a matter of time until it surges again. And then it won't be, you know, everybody doing a blockchain for every single use case, or it won't be NFTs, it will be something else. Um, is there a use case left for blockchain outside of, you know, the crypto USD value sphere? Is, is that something still discussed at the C level? Or is it just dead and left for speculation? I was asked just yesterday this exact same question. It was in an academic setting. Um, and they were teaching a course on big data. And they asked the question about use of blockchain. Um, and it has been very clear for at least 18 months, you know, consensus across CIOs and CTOs that um, while being the basis of crypto has been valuable because the goal was to create, you know, a chain of financial events that didn't require a centralized governance. 
And that was valuable in that world, even though there's been very few winners and a lot of losers, which arguably is the definition of a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> but, but, but aside from that, that even though that was true, the enterprise implementation of blockchain has never been a surviving architectural philosophy. And the mm -hmm. reason why is because the best use of a blockchain as an architectural pattern was as a ledger. And the ledger works well um, if, especially in a large sense, if you have multiple line of businesses, especially if there are multiple geography that had to interact with each other with a single or multiple transactions, but there wasn't the day-to-day -day operations of the individual line of business, or where I was creating a business that existed for multiple transactions across companies and across companies like, uh, like Interact as an example, right? Where it's a transaction that crosses, you know, a buyer and seller and a, and a, and a, and a set of clearance type houses. Unfortunately, there are few and far between those actual use cases. So if you mm -hmm. try to take blockchain and make it an enterprise architectural pattern, it was kind of ridiculous because there was a lot of overhead for solving a problem that could be done by any other architectural pattern. Right? You could just use the relational database. That's what yeah, exactly. I, I, I find about 99% of the use case. I all, the first thing I think about is, can I solve this with a relational database? And 99% of the times the answer is going to be yes right away. And it says, and, and that's it. And that's the end of the question. Then the rest is just like, oh, so it's just a money grabbing scam for most of them. I, I My personal belief is that 99% of it is a money grabbing scam and the only real use case for blockchain is bitcoin and that's it i don't think it has any other use case and, yeah, and the right. reason for it is because a blockchain has no use if everybody's cooperating in good faith then you can if everybody's cooperating in good faith you can just use a relational database and if you're worried that oh but but, but somebody might tamper on the data like things like to verify something like that, that nobody tampered on your data have existed before, you know, you there's, there's transaction logs that have existed in database architectures for a very long time. You could verify that nobody tampered your stuff if you really wanted to. Um, so that's not really, to me, that's not really the differentiator, differentiator for blockchain. And, and even if there was, I'm going to call it mistrust between different teams. Well, that's what normal integration architecture is for right? Feel free to ETL from, from one database to the other, right? <laughs> you didn't require a general ledger with complex security protocols to make that world work. So that, that's kind of why it sort of died in the enterprise. Nobody's really talking about it. It's not a conversation. There's no R&D working on it anymore. It's just not a thing. All right. So uh, then for forecast for 2023, it just it goes to me, it goes uh, basically Bitcoin up or Bitcoin down. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. Don't don't buy any NFTs if you're out there and listening to this. It's just it's, you're just going to lose your money. Serious. All right. All right. And then let's see. Last one that we're going to do today is a strategic shift from cloud migration to cloud modernization and I, the, i'm going to rephrase this question and is to say has the cloud migration migration low-hanging fruit been picked so anybody that really wanted to just lift and shift have they in the last let's say 10 years where you know public cloud has really blown up 
have they already done it? Is that already been picked? If you're looking in this, you know, working in this industry, like we do at Pythian, has the simple stuff been done? Are we looking now at the evolution of this, more complicated workloads and um, more and newer cloud native patterns? Is that the way to go? Is that what's happening? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Uh, I believe two things have happened at the same time. New organizations are created, digital native organizations who didn't partake in the capital CapEx world and purchase equipment into a data center. They created and deployed all their applications and infrastructure into the cloud. They likely chose platform as a service if they were native. They didn't likely choose sort of Kubernetes clusters unless they're building something specifically for the infrastructure. That was the pattern on one side. The other pattern for large enterprises who've been around for years, who had lots of DIY applications, was picking the right fruit from the tree and lifting and shifting relatively small changes. Sure, step one was IaaS, but step two was PaaS, and they've made that shift. Any new development they created was natively in the cloud, and a lot of that work's done. Now, is it 100% done? Is there still some migration? Sure. I, I bet there's still work to do, right? There's always a long tail to anything. We're at mm -hmm. the long tail part, part of migrations. What hasn't been done yet is the modernization part where um, I have either an economic constraint or an, an architectural constraint to this application. And I now have to create a business case to determine whether it's an appropriate destination. Do I just buy new hardware? Right, refresh the equip the tech stack, or do I put the effort in and spend some money and change the application, abstract the data away from the application, create services out of it, use platform functions within the cloud? Do I go through that effort and do I get any gain from it? And the big question that's going to be asked is if I go through that effort, is there a return? If I spend $100,000 making this modernization, is it going to be worth it in some sort of operational savings? It might not be cloud cost savings. It might be people savings. But does that savings mm -hmm. exist? And if the answer is no, they're going to have questions about that. But the second question is going to be, if I modernize this application, will it be less functional than the current application? Do I have to rewrite it in such a way that Absolutely. it's... Absolutely. You don't want to lose features. Yeah, if it's version one, or introduced and you're going against, yeah, going against version 76, well, that's mm -hmm. also a problem, right? So you now have these architectural and economic constraints that I have to deal with. But opportunity-wise, like from a vendor perspective, more consumption, they tend to consume more infrastructure, consume more storage. There's a lot of professional services work to be done. So there's lots of opportunity modernization, but the shift can't the shift from a selling perspective can't be get some savings by shifting to cloud. It's get some value by shifting the cloud. And that value is going to be access to innovative services, access to, to uh, you know, augmentation services like Vertex or or uh, you know uh, image AI or other sort of ML deployments, computer vision stuff. Right, NLP, that's going to be the value creation side, access to services you wouldn't have had you not made the move. Finally, just uh, any other thoughts, any patterns, anything emerging that we might not have discussed here in the closing minutes? 
I really think that there'll be more investment into data. I, I think that'll be a good thing. I think there'll be more investment in people, like you'll see more chief data officers, as an example. They'll go from a four-person team to a 12-person team. We'll start to measure them by insights created. We'll be able to show real value created, not just use cases, right? Not just incidental value. Mm-hmm. Actual value will be produced, top line, bottom line value. I think we'll see a maturity come out of the data team, which means more data technology, more data products, which which I think is a good thing. Absolutely, it's always good, especially if you're in the data space. All right, absolutely. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the time for today. I appreciate everybody that is listening as well. Until next time, bye-bye. Navigating the Datascape.